Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck, and not only am I your host, I'm your your captain, your leader, your sage, your 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 apostle, your mentor, your daddy, your your best friend, your boyfriend or girlfriend, your your son, your adopted son, and maybe your sponsor. I'm all those things. Um, this is a curious podcast. My name is Josh Peck and I am your host and your name is listener. And that's what you do. You listen. And I am recording this on Memorial day, which I've heard is not happy. <laughs> I stupidly, you know, I, I have such a reverence and respect for the armed forces and the people that, you know, it's like, I can be as coastal snarky affected, uh, sarcastic as the, the best of them. And I, I fall victim to all sort of the, the pitfalls of uh, of the young white and entitled <laughs> as uh, as many of my peers can and yet you know uh, my reverence for the armed forces and and the fact that they're just so much uh they're so much better than me people who give their lives for this country and people who uh are in service to to their country. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's not lost on me. Um, what, you know, what that means and, and how it takes a better person than I, because I I was never able to do something like that, nor, nor am I, do I think the military would have wanted me because at 18, I was, I was about 230 pounds, five, nine, still had, you know, hadn't grown my last four inches, flat footed and asthmatic. And I'm not sure where I make sense on the battlefield with those, um, I wouldn't call them handicaps. I'd call them, uh, I'd call them, uh, you know, hindrances. Uh, and if, if you didn't even want to go that negative, I would just call them, um, uh, you know, just fun extra layers of personality and malady. (laughs) Um, but I, you know, I wanted to write something in reverence of the people who serve this country and the people who have given their lives for this country, because I think it is the greatest sacrifice one can do. And I wrote something on Twitter, something to the effect of like, of what I just said and, and my respect, but then I ended it with a sort of a happy Memorial Day, which is so stupid. Uh, and someone immediately wrote me, it's not a happy day. <laughs> Oh boy, I, you know, guys, I, this is why I try not to take life too seriously, or at least like politics and the whole thing, because I think I'm reasonably intelligent. Granted, I didn't go to college, but I know some dumb fucks that have gone to college. But recently I've been doing very well at Jeopardy. I read a fair amount and I hang out with smart people. So I think I'm like, you know, uh, middle to upper tier as far as like, you know, uh, normal people intelligence goes. I'm not even close to like the brilliant geniuses who actually make changes that affect our lives and and are are doing the hard work of the world. But, you know, I think I could have a good chat with the best of them. I think I could go have a brunch with Neil deGrasse Tyson and we could chop it up and he wouldn't walk away being like, who is that idiot? Um, but I did something incredibly stupid writing happy. It's Memorial. (laughs) What am I an idiot? God, that is stupid. That kills me. God, that is not smart. It's the opposite of smart. It's very dumb, very dumb. So uh, I want to observe Memorial day. I want to honor Memorial day. And I want to say thank you for the people who have served this country given their lives for this country because it is uh, of the highest order and my respect and uh, yeah, they do what they do so that we can do what we do and live free. And that is a blessing and not everyone in the world gets to say that they live free. So think about that. I'm just reeling from my stupidity. Mm. Sometimes it just, it's, you know what? Sometimes it's fun. 
sometimes it's fun to realize just how fallible <laughs> and prone to a. Du- I mean, uh, speaking of Jeopardy, listen, I played Jeopardy with my in-laws. I mean, as as if they couldn't get any more perfect, they they love a good Jeopardy game, which is great. Because I guys, try it. J- having a half hour trivia night with the people that you love. It really is a bonding experience. But sometimes I'll blurt out an answer. It'll be like the category will be like flowers. And they'll be like, this fun flower can be found in flower shops and in the Amazon. And I'll be like, golden retriever. But they're like, the category is flowers. And I'm like, oh, I sorry. I thought because uh, gold, golden and sorry, sorry. <laughs> it's so stupid. I'm not a smart boy many times. And then other times, it's so funny. My my, my wife and I are doing some grown-up shit, and we're, we're looking for a home to purchase that would be our home in which we could live. <laughs> I think there's a Drake and Josh line, and I don't do this often, but it seems apropos where I said something to the effect of, like, this is our home, the house in which we live. Great show, still on the air. Um... Nevertheless, we're looking at a home and we were like going through all the pros and cons of a of a particular place we were considering. And my wife goes, God, you get so passionate about these things. And I'm like, because I'm very smart. <laughs> That's what I said to her. I said, because I'm very smart. And she was like, shut up. And I was like, if you want the smart one here to shut up, hey, it's to your detriment. You know what I mean? Because I'm here, I'm saying, you know, listen, this mind, you've got your own private think tank here, babe. And like, you better take advantage. You wouldn't tell Elon Musk to shut up, would you? Well, I'm like Elon Musk's slower half-brother that he's never met, who is in South African, who grew up in, uh, in well, you know, in a, not the best part of Jersey. But nevertheless, I got ideas. You know, maybe I wouldn't come up with an electric car. Maybe I'd come up with an electric blender, but they're both electric and they're both something you can use every day if you like to drive and or like smoothies. So I'm not smart and I might purchase a home, which is terrifying, but also appropriate and a blessing that it's something that I can do in my 30s because not everyone can do that and probably makes sense like because you know why it's probably going to be okay? Because hundreds of millions have done it before me. <laughs> now, granted, you got, you know, a hundred grand in the bank and you buy a $10 million house, you're a fucking idiot. But if you check the boxes, you find somewhere that's within your budget and it's somewhere that you can hopefully grow into if you're a small family that might add a human or two over the next couple of years. Definitely, you know, be doing a lot of practicing because that's the best part of having kids is is the practicing part. Um, the making them, that's fun. Uh, yeah. But yeah, you know, the people have done this from all over the world at many different income levels. And I am not that special. And there's a good chance that the world will not stop or the gods will all of a sudden turn on me the moment that I put every dollar I've ever saved into a piece of property that might not work out. <laughs> no, that's not, you know, it's, it's just very adult. It's very grown up. And I don't know if generations before us have felt like more comfortable with these grown up things, but I can only speak for me and mine. And I feel like it's a, it's a terrifying uh, endeavor slightly, but also appropriate and doable. Um, So, yeah, I'll keep you guys updated. We'll see. I'll tell you what, don't get any fucking ideas if I do buy a house. Because you know what? You you crazies out there, listen. This place is going to be like Fort Knox. We're going to have walls. We're going to have alarms. I'm going to have a security guard live with us. That's right. I got the scratch for that for at least a week or two. Yep. 24-hour security for a week or two. Now, the question is, oh, smart guy, you're like a week or two. No problem. You don't know a fucking week. You don't know what week I'm going to have them there. So, you know, listen, are your odds of robbing me good? Sure. But they're not that good, right? You might come the wrong week and you're going to be met by Craig, my security guard, who's going to be dressed up and he carries a taser. 
Take your chances, fuckface. Take your chances. Uh, on today's show, James Clear. James, he's a really brilliant guy. He wrote a book called Atomic Habits, which is just absolutely crushing it. And I mean, I could give you a sort of a insight into what the book's about, but listen, you're about to get that insight from the man himself. Um, He's just a, a really uh, incredibly smart and uh, and generous guy. I'm so glad that I got to spend the hour with him, and I think you guys are going to love it. So here is James Clear. So how's life treating you in the in the era of COVID nineteen? I mean, talk about an opportunity to put together some good habits. Yeah, yeah, it is a very relevant time. Hopefully, you're staying safe and healthy. It's um, I'm I'm good. We're we're all good, but it's uh, yeah, crazy, strange times. Do you you live in Ohio, Columbus, Ohio? Yep, beautiful Columbus, home of the Wendy's headquarters. That is true. Uh, many other things as well, and uh, yeah, it's um, it's great. It's a good place to call home. Uh, I make it I make it to New York City pretty often as well, like probably five to ten times a year. Um, so I'm there a lot too. But I really like calling it home here, and we're close to family, so that's good. What I've been observing with guys like you, who are like these really prolific authors and speakers and whatnot, is that you get this beautiful balance of being able to like go and see the world and be prolific, but you don't necessarily have to live like in L.A. or Chicago or New York, and that must be so nice. Yeah, it is nice in a lot of ways. Um, I kind of have like a budding love affair with New York, so I, I really like it a lot. Um, but I wonder if I feel that way partially because I don't have to live there every day. Um, you know, like I get to go for a week and it's great. And then like I it doesn't have to like grade on me for after four months or six months or 10 months or whatever. So I don't know. Um, there, All those cities are wonderful. And uh, I, I like visiting there as well. But I'm happy to call Columbus home. So um, I've been dying to ask because, you know, I've read your book and I, I've been watching a lot of your um, your speaking engagements and whatnot that you have on YouTube. And I'm, I'm always fascinated with people like you who are, you know, where optimization is sort of a big part of your thesis and, and, and what you teach and whatnot. It, do lazy people kill you or do you look at them and go, oh, God, thank God business is good? No, I look at them and think, oh, I see one of my own. <laughs> That's like, like I struggle with all that stuff too, you know, like, um, I think, uh, it's also interesting to, I was just talking to somebody about this, that people who are very successful in one area of life often, uh, are not elite or struggle in other areas. Um, so, you know, it's not like, uh, I have every aspect of my life dialed in. I think this is kind of a common misconception about people who write about about habits or whatever is that, Oh, you must have all your habits like perfected. But the truth is my readers and I are peers and we're all working through it together. And you know, the only difference is when I come across an idea or find something useful, I write about it and share it, but I struggle with all the same things everybody else is struggling with. So, um, and to a certain degree, I think it's really important to, uh, it, maybe to put it strangely to be lazy or to struggle in a certain area or to have experienced that because a lot of ideas sound great in theory, but they're not that great in practice. And, uh, the ultimate test that I want to be judged by is do the ideas work in the real world. And so, uh, in that sense, I always am wary about, becoming this kind of new age version of an academic where you're in your ivory tower and not implementing the ideas or whatever. And, uh, I don't want that. I want to have a foot in the real world. So, you know, I had to build better habits to complete the book. I had to build writing habits to build my business. I had to build productivity and management habits to get in shape. I had to build strength training and exercise habits. And I think that's important to know what it's like for the ideas to work in the real world. So I struggle with all that stuff and I'm, you know, also happy to try to implement it myself because I think it makes the work better. But I, I wonder like, because in your field and I'm, I'm obsessed with it, right? Like I'm the Tim Ferriss guy, Ryan holiday. Like I love people like you who really, to your point, and you talked about this, I was watching a, a speech you were giving to a, a basketball program where you're like, listen, these are the ideas I formulated, but they're 
always in some respects supported by like a scientific or academic research that is, you know, tried and true. So I have like some real scientific evidence to support these things. But also in this world, there's a bunch of charlatans. I mean, you, right? Like, does, does it piss you off sometimes when you see all these people who write books in this like similar vein where you're like, you have no idea what you're talking about. You're giving us a bad name, man. Yeah. I mean, of course that stuff is terrible. Um, you know, this interesting thing, like I'm usually so focused on trying to make sure that my ideas are sound that honestly, I don't know a lot of what else other people are kind of like pilfering around. Um, I, this weird thing happens where the more that you learn about something, the more you realize how much you don't know. And it's kind of, I think, um, I, one time I heard it described as, uh, the more that your um, the area of your knowledge expands, so does the perimeter of your ignorance. You know, like you can think about the circle expanding, and like you do know more than you knew before. But there also right. is a, a, a greater diameter on the outside, a greater um, uh, perimeter of what you realize you don't know. Uh, you're like butting up more and more against the unknown, and so um, honestly, like I don't. I don't have extra time to try to like tear down every bad argument or whatever. I'm really just trying to like fill in the holes or the gaps in my own thinking and make that as sound and as robust as possible. And I, I do think that championing good ideas is often more effective than tearing down bad ones. Because when you tear down bad ideas, all you do is you just shine a light on them. You bring more energy and attention to them. And the worst thing that can happen to a bad idea is that it's forgotten. The, the worst thing that can happen to a terrible uh, pitch is that it's met with silence. And so I am hoping that those ideas will wither away and die in the darkness if I can give as much light and energy and momentum as possible to good, scientifically proven, uh, practical um, ideas. And so yeah, I'm just trying to do the best I can with that. But what do you think, what do you think it is an hour? Sort of, I feel like more so than ever, whether we gravitate towards the good ideas or the bad ones, everyone is in deep need of this kind of book. Like the things, it seems very on trend specifically now where people are dying for optimization, for the ability in which to like uproot their life, bad habits and whatnot, and how to sort of correct these things. And whether the people subscribe to it or, you know, they, they read the first two pages of your book and then they can't, you know, they can't keep up with it. It seems like more so than ever, people have a need to like, to correct their lifestyle, like more, more so than ever. It seems like people are aware that like on some level, if they continue these bad patterns, the, the result is going to be long-term negative for them. Well, I, I do agree that it's definitely needed. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's more than ever before. I, in a lot of ways, I think about the ideas I write about as being timeless. They're, you know, they're evergreen. I mean, habits were important 30 years ago and 300 years ago and 3000 years ago, and hopefully they'll continue to be important 3000 years from now. And so in that sense, I try to write about these timeless concepts that apply and touch us all in important ways. And so I do think they're you know, usually if you ask an author, like, who is your book for? And they say, everybody, like, that's a terrible answer. Um, but right. I, I do think to a certain degree, not everybody is going to read Atomic Habits, but I, I think that most people could look at the cover and think, oh, okay, I get why, I get why that would help. I get why that's useful. Um, because we also deeply do kind of know we have this, this feeling that you're describing, which is if I can just get my habits dialed in, if I can have a little more control over my behavior, if I can be the architect of my habits and not the victim of them, then maybe I can get some better outcomes. And I think that's true. Uh, I think it's been proven out in almost any domain or area of life. And I, my hope was that writing the book would give people a, a playbook that they could use to make some of those, those positive changes. Now, one thing that perhaps is slightly different or new or um, yeah, relatively recent in the span of human history is that we are inundated with information now more there's more noise more information more bits coming at us than ever before and so i think as a result of that the the skill the ability to curate that fire hose of information 
filter down to what matters most and then distill those ideas into practical action steps. I think that's that's actually more valuable than it's ever been before. And I think that's true in in every potential domain. Um, and in a lot of ways, that was the role that I tried to play with writing Atomic Habits was that let's take all this information that we have, this huge bodies of research from psychology and biology and neuroscience and philosophy and all kinds of areas and filter out the bits that are most relevant to daily life and building better habits and try to distill those bits into some practical steps. And uh, ultimately that was the, the product of the book. And so I do, I do think you're, you're kind of hinting at something that is true that we need that more than we've ever needed it before. But I also think the the principles, the underlying idea of building good habits is relatively timeless. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, up until a couple hundred years ago, we didn't have a choice, right? Like if your habit was foraging and surviving every day on some level, whether you did it imperfectly or not, it, it had to happen or you froze or starved to death. And then it seemed like there was this weird time when there was sort of a surplus of food and and comfort that people kind of became okay with the idea of like, meh, whatever happens, happens. Not everyone, but it seemed a little bit like the idea of like, this is my life. It's never going to change. And so let me ride this out till I drop dead at 60 of a heart attack. But more so than ever, it seems like people are the idea of how finite your life is and sort of the the ability in which to improve what, you know, hopefully will be 80, 90 years on this planet is sort of more sort of um, pressing than ever. But I wonder, like, you, you're a, you're a college athlete, right? Yep. I played baseball through college. Man. So <laughs> I only say that because I'm, I'm just so painfully unathletic, but maybe if I work on my habits, I'll, I'll improve. <laughs> um, what, um, I mean, that's got to instill good habits from jump, right? Is that a big driving force for most people, like playing sports at a young age to establish good habits? Yeah, I think that's one place that it can come from. You know, I mean, you could have a similar story if you, you know, played a musical instrument seriously or, you know, do all kinds of different things. But for me, for my story, that was certainly an area where I learned it. I think, um, you know, looking back on it, I think there are kind of two major lessons or many, but two that sing to me right now. Um, the first is just that it's so structured, like you're there, you have, you know, in a certain sense, a habit of showing up to practice at the same time each day and going through the same stretches and routines and the same drills. And, um, there's a lot of repetition. And, uh, as you go through that, you start to develop your skills. And so I think it, even without anybody explicitly saying it, it implicitly teaches you that you can improve your habits, that you can improve your skills, that, things that once required attention and effort and energy can become more automatic and fluent. And once you realize that, once you've had that experience, then I think you're more ripe or you have the potential to start to apply the same lesson in other areas. So I think that certainly helps. The other thing that I, um, you don't often hear people talk about as much, but I, I think is perhaps even more important than I had initially realized is the social environment. Um, being surrounded by a group of people, in this case, your teammates who have the same goals as you who are working toward a common outcome, who support the behaviors that, that you're trying to build. Um, anytime you're in a tribe or a group or a team where a certain set of behaviors are seen as the norm, it becomes much more attractive to stick to those. And I think that's a lesson we can apply to pretty much anyone who's building habits, which is you want to join groups where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it's normal in that group, then it's going to become very attractive for you to do. It's going to be a signal to the other people that, hey, I fit in, I get it, I belong. And um, the, one of the things that I think causes a lot of people to struggle with their habits that restricts our ability to change is that if people have to choose between, do I have the habits I want to build uh, but I'm kind of cast out a little bit. I don't quite fit in. Or do I have uh, the habits that I don't really love, but I get to be a part of the group? Most people would rather be wrong and with the crowd than right and by themselves. And so the, the right. desire to belong often overpowers the desire to improve. 
Now, the good news is you don't have to choose, but you do need to try to get those aligned uh, to as much as possible find groups where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. I think that's a big thing that sports does and facilitates, but you can also apply to other habits as well. James, this is bad news for me. I'm surrounded by scumbags. (laughs) (laughs) It is challenging, you know, like there's always places, you know, you'll want to do something and then your family like doesn't support it or your friends have different goals or whatever. And, um, you know, sometimes a drastic change is needed, a change of scenery, move to a different city, take a different job, whatever. But a lot of the time you don't necessarily have to like fire your friends as much as find a, like a sacred space where that habit can live, you know, like, sure, maybe the rest of your roommates aren't interested in doing yoga. And so they don't care about signing up for it or doing it in the um, living room or whatever. But you could go to the yoga studio and uh, that's a sacred space where that habit's normal. And for that hour, you're at least surrounded by people who get it and want to support it and uplift it. And um, the more that you can find those spaces where a habit can kind of cult- be cultivated and grow, the, the easier it is to stick to it in that space. The hard thing is when you're trying to build a habit that runs counter to the space that you're in at that time. And so in a lot of ways, you also think about not only the tribe, but the context that you're in, you want, you want to be in an environment that supports that, not just uh, surrounded by a group that supports it. How much, James, in your opinion, is greatness sort of achieved by embracing the suck in, in the respect of like you heard about Kobe that like for him to be as brilliant as he was on the court, win or lose. And this might be folklore, but I actually interviewed his um one of his old coaches, uh, win or lose, he would shoot 500 free throws at the end of every game because mm. he was just so obsessed with the fundamentals. And and I always laugh when I have friends who like think that a musician is, you know, they'll, they'll look at them on the stage and think they're so sexy and, and attractive. And I'm like, they are, but those people are band geeks. Like, don't forget that person is so obsessed with their instrument for them to look that cool and effortless. I promise you every time they're not on stage for the most part, they're like practicing for hours, the same lick, the same repetition. Like, and it just, for me, in my experience, I've seen the people that I truly look up to, they are so obsessed with the fundamentals and the repetition of that. Do you, do you find that to be true? Yeah, I do think that's true. And maybe it's kind of interesting to talk about it in a couple different ways. The, one of the first thoughts that came to me as you were describing it is that I think Naval Ravikant, he's an entrepreneur and investor. He's got a concept sort of like this where he says, essentially, you don't get to cherry pick the pieces of people's lives that you want to emulate or that you like. You know, like you you can't just say, I want to be the sexy musician on the stage and have the the tour. You also have to say, I want to be in the studio eight hours a day and I want to be the band geek. And I want to, you know, like you need, you don't just uh, get to pluck out the outcome. You also have to want the lifestyle. And I think this is a mistake that people often make, or, you know, myself as well, um, that we, we imitate or we want to replicate, or we set goals around the outcomes when really what we should be doing is looking for the people whose lifestyles we want to replicate. The question is less like, what do I want my best day to look like? It's more like, what do I want my normal day to look like? And if you're willing to have your normal day look like that, then, then you can start to build the habits and the lifestyle that just sort of naturally lead to that best day, naturally lead to that peak performance. So I think, um, I think that, that line of thinking would probably serve us better, but your question about like embracing the suck or this idea of, Oh, there's, you know, a sacrifice to everything. That's true. It's it's obviously true that there's a trade-off and that it requires hard work and that there are, you know, certain levels of sacrifice required to achieve certain things. That said, if you talk to a lot of people in these that are like elite in certain domains, it often is not as painful to them as it is to the average person. And I think that actually, uh, a lot of the time they'll, people will say something like, uh, you should do what you're passionate about or something. I think actually the inverse of that is maybe a more useful frame, which is what is the thing that doesn't hurt me as much as it hurts other people? What is the thing that doesn't feel as much like the suck for me as it does for most? Because that's actually the thing that you were made to do. You know, like you can handle the pain of it a little easier than, than most people could. 
And um, in a lot of ways, the quest of life is to, to find those areas, maybe the one or two or three that don't feel as painful to you that you feel like actually, yeah, I, I can handle the suck of this better than most people. And I get better results because of it. And, um, you know, maybe for Kobe shooting 500 shots was meditative or was fulfilling in some way. Whereas for the normal person, it might've been monotonous and boring and, you know, just like they're not made for that. So there are a lot of elements involved, but, uh, but I do think that for many elite performers, uh, the pain doesn't feel as great as maybe it does for most people. Well, it, it's weird. And, and you, I, I heard you talk about this sort of like the rewiring of your neural networks. And I feel smart even just saying that, but <laughs> like, I, I, you know, I remember uh, I was watching a documentary about this jujitsu um, fighter named Kron Gracie, who's part of like the, the famous Gracie jujitsu family. And he, you know, the amount of energy that he expels in any given day, he'll run, he'll swim, he'll bike, and then he'll train jujitsu for two to three hours a night. And he'll say like, I, I like to be, I like to hallucinate. I want to be so tired. Like I like to be wobbly at <laughs> the end of the night. And it's as if he's like rewired himself to where that is a pleasure center for him. Mm. And I think like that's so, I found that to be true as well. I'm, I'm getting in shape for this this TV show I'm starting in July. And so I've started to like, I'm no longer doing that like nice 45 minute maintenance workout. I'm doing the two hour one that makes me want to cry. But that old familiar feeling is returning of like, oh, you love this. Like, oh, this is how it feels to be utterly depleted at the end of a workout, you know? Mm. It's interesting. Yeah. At some point, the, um, the pain becomes or the, the sacrifice becomes a signal that you're being the type of person you want to be, you know, and like that, mm. that affirmation of that identity that I, I was working so hard, I was hallucinating. I was, you know, grinding so hard that I, I could feel the pain of it. Uh, I've thought of that Muhammad Ali quote where he's, people are like, how many sit-ups do you do? And he's like, I don't know. I only start counting once they start hurting. And that, right. that idea that I'm reinforcing this identity, I'm being this kind of person, I'm being elite, I'm being an athlete, I'm being whatever you want to call it uh, in your own, your own mind. That's a powerful thing too, because, uh, you know, and this, I talk about this in Atomic Habits a little bit, this concept I call identity-based habits, that your habits provide evidence for the type of person that you are. So, you know, every day that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized. Or every time you do that brutal workout, you embody the identity of someone who is an athlete. And um, ultimately, true behavior change is really identity change. You're really trying to shift the way that you look at yourself. And so in that way, I kind of think that's one of the most powerful things that habits can do, which is that every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you want to become. And the more that you show up and do that habit, the more you cast votes for being that kind of person. And so I wonder if a lot of these elite athletes, like they're not really thinking about the pain. They're thinking about the evidence it provides them. They're thinking about the type of person that they're being uh, in that moment rather than what the suffering feels like. So to that point, what do you think is the most insidious trait that people have that sabotaging them from establishing good habits? Um, hmm, that's interesting. I, if you just stop the question at what do I think the most insidious trait is that people have, I think it's the, uh, and again, this is something I fall victim to myself all the time, but inability to direct our attention. There's almost, it's almost guaranteed that no human on the planet is always spending their attention in the highest and best way possible. We get distracted. We focus on things that don't pay off that much. We waste time. You know, time is precious. And people often say like, oh, there's not enough time. But the truth is we waste a lot of it. And so, um, you know, before we should ask for more time, we should just try to use the time we have more effectively. And, um, so I think that I think the misallocation of attention is a big factor there. And that also is a big factor in building better habits. Like people get distracted from a text message on their phone or an email that comes in or, you know, uh, somebody knocking on the door, like all, all kinds of things that can pull you off track and then derail your habits. But the other answer to this question that's a little more habit specific is I think it's pretty simple. It's just making the habit too big. Um, 
you know, for whatever reason, we tend to be very all or nothing about habits. Sometimes we, we think very big or we try to set these goals for ourselves and it pulls us off course. And so the, one of the methods that I recommend in the book about this is, um, the, what I call the two minute rule. And it basically says, take whatever habit you're trying to build and scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So read 40 books a year becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And sometimes people resist that a little bit. Cause they're like, okay, buddy, like I, I get what you're saying, you know, uh, but this kind of feels like some mental trick, right? And if I know it's a trick, then why would I fall for it? And my response is, I get where you're coming from. I, I had this reader, uh, his name is Mitch, and he ended up losing over 100 pounds. And one of the first things that he did when he went to the gym was he had this rule where for the first six weeks, he would go to the gym, but he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he'd get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds ridiculous, right? You're like, okay, obviously this is not going to get the guy the results that he wants. But if you step back, what you realize is he was mastering the art of showing up. He was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, even if it was only for five minutes. And I think that that's a much deeper truth about habits that people often overlook, which is a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? Like it has to become the standard in your life before you can scale it up or optimize it or turn it into something more. And I think that tendency to bite off more than we can chew or to think, well, if I can't read a whole book every month, then why bother reading it all? Or if I can't do yoga four days a week for 45 minutes, then why should I even take out the mat or whatever? And the two minute rule kind of helps you overcome that a little bit. It's like, look, the first step is to master the art of showing up. The first step is to standardize this. And then once it's part of your lifestyle, then you got all kinds of options for optimizing it and improving it. So I think that's probably one of the biggest pitfalls. Will you talk about one of the tenants that that's a big part of, of sort of what you teach, which is the 1% better every day? Sure. So one of the, you know, there are a couple of core ideas in atomic habits. And one of the core ideas is the idea that habits are the compound interest of self-improvement. So the same way that money multiplies through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them across time. And on any given day, it doesn't feel like a whole lot, you know, like, um, the, the phrase that I like to use is like, try to get 1% better each day. Well, a choice that's 1% better or 1% worse on any given day doesn't feel like very much. Like what's the difference between eating a burger and fries for lunch or eating a salad? Well, on one day, not really anything. You go and look at yourself in the mirror at the end of the night, your body looks the same. The scale hasn't really changed. But if you turn around two or five or 10 years later, man, those daily choices really do add up. And so this, I think, is one of the, the core ideas that habits don't add up. They don't, they, they compound, they are the compound interests of self-improvement. And so with any compounding process, the greatest returns are delayed, right? Like when you're at the beginning of that compound curve, you don't really see much difference between 1% better, or 1% worse. All those gains are in the future, but the key is to focus more on the trajectory than your current position. And this, I think is something that it's for whatever reason, it's hard for us to do. Like, uh, people are always focused on their current position. How much money do I have in the bank account? What's the scale say that I weigh? How productive am I being? Do I feel stressed right now? But instead, if we focus on the trajectory, on that idea of getting 1% better, then you can start to put yourself on a path where those gains compound and you turn around and you're kind of surprised by the amount of progress that you make a year or two from now, even though it doesn't feel like much on any given day. So the way that I like to summarize it is, if you have good habits, time becomes your ally, right? All you need is patience. You just need each day to work for you. But if you have bad habits, then time becomes your enemy. And every day that clicks by, you dig the hole a little bit deeper. And so that core idea of getting 1% better or of habits being the compound interest of self-improvement, it's all about understanding that what we're really focused on is not our current position, but our current trajectory. And if we can show up again tomorrow and win the day and get 1% better, then that trajectory will keep working for us. And pretty soon we'll be surprised by the progress that we're making. But it's just like a little philosophical construct to help keep you focused on the, the positive direction. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're so right. And this probably has been true forever, but especially in the age of social media, it's like I always tell the joke that, you know, people shouldn't post themselves out at the club looking perfect on Instagram. They should post themselves the next day as they're like hugging the toilet bowl, throwing up their $25 <laughs> drinks, right? But it's true in the sense of like, Every social media, Instagram specifically, is sort of like you you projecting an image of you on your best day. And I think it's easy for us to forget how much goes into sort of like what these um, finish line photos take. And, uh, and, you know, being at the club isn't exactly a finish line, but especially the physicality and, and we become so image obsessed and whatnot. And it's like, we're rarely seeing the process, right? We're only seeing sort of like the final destination and it's easy to sort of compare and despair against these images and just think like, God, to if, if that's their baseline, I'm screwed. But the reality is it took so much more to get there. We just weren't privy to that. Right. Yeah. The, the outcomes of success are often highly public, public and highly visible. Uh, they're easy to view, but the process behind success is often hidden and invisible and very difficult to view. You know, it's like we, part of it is social media, as you're explaining some of it's like the, just the way the news cycle works, like things only become newsworthy. They only become worthy of discussion when there's like an outcome, you know, like you, you only hear about the play once it becomes a Broadway hit. Nobody's doing a news story on like a writer sitting there, like working on a script that isn't finished yet. Or right. you, you only hear about, you know, you'll never see like a news story that is like man eats chicken and salad for lunch today. Right. It's only newsworthy like six months or a year later when it's like man loses a hundred pounds. And so I think because we see the outcomes so much because they are so visible we tend to overvalue them. We overvalue the outputs and undervalue the inputs. We overvalue the outcome and undervalue the process. And this is uh, one of the other core ideas of Atomic Habits, which is that you don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. You know, like so often, I think partially because we see these outcomes all day long, we think, oh, I just need to be more ambitious. I need to set a bigger goal for myself. I need to 10X my vision. I need to want it more. But the truth is, having a goal, it, I'm not going to say it's unnecessary. It, it can be helpful, but it's kind of the easy part. You know, like I can set a goal right now to sell 10 million books. It took me like three seconds, right? Or like what you see is um, in many areas of life, in many domains, the winners and the losers, so to speak, they have the same goals. Like a hundred people apply for a job and presumably every candidate has the goal of getting the job or 25 people compete for a gold medal. Presumably all of the athletes have the goal of winning the gold medal. So if the winners and the losers have the same goals, the goal cannot be the thing that makes the difference in their performance, right? It might be necessary, but it's not sufficient for success. And so I, I think to put it maybe a little finer point on or just bring it back to our conversation about habits, your goal is your desired outcome. Your system is the collection of daily habits that you're following. And if there's ever a gap between your desired outcome and your daily habits, if there's ever a gap between your system and your goal, the daily habits will always win, right? Like almost by definition, your current outcomes in life, uh, sorry, excuse me, your current habits are perfectly designed to deliver your current outcomes, right? Like almost by definition. So if you want things to change, and this, this again is like another little counterintuitive thing, which is that Usually when people say, oh, I want change, I want to improve, I want something different. Um, people say, well, you need to try harder. You need to want it more. But the truth is, if you're struggling to change, the problem usually isn't you. It's the system that you're following. So we don't change not because we don't want to change, but because we have the wrong system for change. And so that, again, comes back to building these better habits, getting 1% better each day, making a variety of small improvements that all add up to a more productive, more useful, more helpful and efficient system. And if you can do that, then the trajectory is pointed in the positive direction. You end up getting to where you want to get to. But it's often about putting the system over the goal or putting the habits over the outcome rather than getting wrapped up in that kind of social media mindset, as you describe. It's funny. I, I remember I was interviewing um, the guy that manages my money and he's like this, you know, great sort of you know, 70s 
you know, guy in his seventies and he's of like another era. And I, I think he still, still wears suspenders and, and, uh, it, it was interesting cause I was asking him sort of, he, he runs this huge sort of financial, this, this wealth management company and presides over a lot of money and a lot of employees. And I said, what do you look for in the employees, um, that you hire? And he said, you know, People just assume that I'm looking for Harvard guys, Wharton Business School, a very specific type um, of of schooling and sort of track record. He said, honestly, it, it has very little interest to me. He's like, I will almost always pick the guy who was in the military and obviously has a certain level of, of academia, but he's like, I'll, I'll almost always pick the guy who was in the military before I pick the guy who was like number one in their class at Wharton Business School. He said, because the, that guy thinks I owe them something. He said, where the guy who was smart and got a degree and is hungry and developed good habits in the military where you kind of don't have a choice because if you don't do what the person says, you go to the brig. He's like, that to me is much more attractive for someone I'm going to hire. And so like, I guess there are certain institutions the military specifically where you're sort of like forced to institute good habits from the beginning, right? Like, are there some good sort of, um, what, what incubators for good habits, like where you're sort of installed into a good system from the beginning, or is it all sort of self-driven? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Interesting to think about the different spaces we occupy as being better or worse for incubating habits. You know, like people who have the good fortune of having uh, good parents, they probably are in an incubator where it's more likely that they were fostered, uh, fostering good habits as they were growing up. Um, you also hear about a lot of professional athletes. Surprisingly, you know, the again, kind of the standard narrative about a lot of athletes is, man, they're so driven, they're so disciplined, they have so much willpower, they want it so much. But actually, if you talk to quite a few athletes, like after they retire from professional sports, they'll say things like, oh, man, it's been so hard for me to keep my habits up now that I'm not like there. You know, like previously they had world-class doctors, physical trainers, strength coaches, um, position coaches, teaching them and creating an environment where everything was organized towards them incubating those, the desired habits. And so everything from the people around them to the facilities, to the resources, to the space, like it all was designed for that one outcome in mind. And most people, professional athletes also, uh, would find it much easier to build better habits if you're in a space like that. So I think actually the practical takeaway, the lesson that we can all use from this is that you can build your own little incubator. You can, you can optimize your own environment to make it more conducive to building better habits. And this is a concept that in atomic habits, I refer to as environment design, but the core idea is pretty simple, which is just that you want to make the good behaviors, the path of least resistance. You want to make the good habits, the most obvious and available and visible thing, whether that's which icons are the first ones that you see on your phone. When I wanted to build a reading habit, I put audible and pocket as the two of the icons in my little home bar. So I'd see them right as soon as I open them to remind myself to build good reading habits. Or what's the first thing that you see when you look at your kitchen counter, put the healthy foods out there, tuck the unhealthy stuff away in the pantry or the back of the freezer or places that are harder to see. What's the first thing that you see when you go to your office? Um, you know, like what is, uh, are the tasks that you need to get done? Is that the most obvious and available and visible thing on your computer screen or on your desk at work or wherever? So some of that is optimizing it to make it visible. And the other part is optimizing it to make it easy to do. Uh, try to reduce friction, decrease steps, make it as simple as possible for you to take the, the productive or the healthy or the effective action. And by doing that, just by making some of those tweaks, you can create your own little incubator that uh, improves the odds that you'll be able to stick with good habits. So speaking of habits in this like new world order we're living in right now with like social distancing and washing our hands, how let's say May 1st, they lift or June 1st, they lift all these sanctions. How long do you think people sustain these habits? Like a day? Do you think they actually keep it up or do people just immediately regress back to their old ways? So there probably will be a lot of regression is, is probably the honest answer. But the reason why is not because people are, you know, incapable or didn't actually want the habit or whatever. The reason is that 
you cannot have a habit outside of an environment. It's not possible. We every every moment of our lives is within some context, within some environment. And habits get tied to a particular context. For example, your couch might be where you watch Netflix at 7 p.m. when you get home from work. Or the coffee shop across from your office might be where you uh, browse Twitter and you know check up on your social media feeds or whatever. And even though you don't explicitly think it or say it, when you go into that coffee shop, you might be pulled toward taking your phone out. Or when you sit down on the couch at 7 p.m., you have this kind of behavioral bias toward turning on Netflix. And so whenever the environment changes in a big way, behavior also changes in a big way. So while these sanctions and sheltering in place and working from home and all these major changes have happened, obviously, because the environment has shifted, you're going to see the growth or the the uh, start of many new behaviors as well. So sometimes those are productive, like some people might be able to use this time when they're working from home or sheltering in place to uh, build a new wor- uh, body weight workout habit or to go for more walks throughout the day or to read more. And then other ones might be less productive. Like maybe you're finding that you're snacking a lot more because you're right next to the pantry now. Um, whereas oh, before you me. were in the office, right? So yeah. So there's there are good ones and bad ones that are that are coming up. Um, but they're often, regardless of whether they're productive or unproductive, they're tied to that changing context. And so yeah, as soon as people change their environment, they're probably gonna see a change in behavior again. Um The key, if you have a couple good ones that you're building that you want to stick with, is to try to find ways to make sure that uh, either you can transition the new behavior to a new environment when you switch back, or uh, you can try to keep that some piece of that environment stable and uh, do it. So, for example, if you're building like a home workout habit while you're while you're working from home now, it might be helpful to build that habit at a time of day when you could still do it when you go back to work. So maybe the first thing you do is you wake up and you do a home workout routine and then you take a shower and start your day, even though you're working at home and you could do it at any time. Because when you go back to the office, you can wake up, do a home workout routine, shower, start your day and go to the office. So you don't have to give up the new behavior when the lifestyle changes. So looking for ways to keep that environment or context stable can help the good habits persist even when we change back to uh, to our previous ways. Will you talk about the Seinfeld strategy? Sure. So this is um, this is one of my favorite strategies for getting a habit to stick because uh, more broadly speaking, before I share what the the strategy is, habits and behaviors need to be enjoyable. They need to be satisfying for you to want to stick with them. And we've known this for a long, long time. B.F. Skinner was doing his kind of famous work on rewards and offering rewards for behavior, you know, way back almost 100 years ago. And um, what we've learned is that the more uh, behavior is associated with a positive emotion, the more it's associated with enjoyment and satisfaction, the more likely it is to stick. And so the Seinfeld strategy is kind of a way of doing this when you're waiting for the long-term rewards of a habit to still show up. So the the story, the example, uh, is that Jerry Seinfeld, famous comedian, uh, he's performing at the comedy club one night and he goes backstage. And supposedly there's this young comic named Brad Isaac who's back there opening for him. And uh, he catches Seinfeld and he says, oh, you know, something like Mr. Seinfeld, I'm a big fan of your work. I wonder if you have any tips for a young comic. And Seinfeld thinks for a second. He says, well, you know, the secret to being a better comic is to write better jokes. And the secret to writing better jokes is to write every day. So one thing you could do is get this big wall calendar with every day of the year mapped out on it. And then each day that you do your task of writing jokes for five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it is, you put an X on that day. And at some point, you'll get a little bit of a streak going five, six, seven, eight days in a row. And at that point, it doesn't matter how good or how bad the jokes are. It doesn't matter how you feel about the jokes. Your only goal becomes don't break the chain. doesn't matter if they make it into your material or not or whatever it is, just don't break the chain. And that idea of not breaking the chain, I think is a powerful mantra to have for pretty much any habit because, you know, like take my parents, for example, they like to swim, uh, but when they get out of the water, their body looks exactly the same as when they got in, right? This And this is the case for many habits. There's no visible benefit of doing it on any given day. 
even though you know that it pays off in the long run. But my dad, he takes out a little pocket calendar and he puts an X on that day. So just like the Seinfeld strategy, he's building this little, th- these are called habit trackers, by the way. Um, and the more that you get that little streak building up, it's a signal, a, a visual signal of your progress that day. And so, no, your body hasn't changed yet or you haven't written a joke that makes it into the, the stand-up routine or whatever, but you have a signal that you did the right thing. And even though it's a small thing, it's satisfying to a certain extent degree. It gives you a little bit of enjoyment uh, that day. And that little bit of satisfaction is important. You need to be able to visualize your progress. Now, there is one thing that I like to add to this usually, which is that, you know, at some point, every streak breaks, your kids get sick, or you, you know, have to travel for work, or you got to do a favor for your parents or whatever it is, something throws you off course. And having a streak, building a streak up, that's very motivating. But losing a streak can be very demotivating. You feel like you lost all your progress. And so the mantra that I like to combine with never uh, with uh, don't break the chain is never miss twice. And never miss twice says, look, you know, I wish I hadn't broke my diet and binge ate the pizza, but never miss twice. Let me make sure I get back on track tomorrow. Or, you know, I wish I hadn't skipped the swimming workout, but never miss twice. Let me make sure I'm in there tomorrow morning. And by pouring all of your energy into starting a new streak as quickly as possible, you get to the end of the year and you realize, oh, those mistakes are, you know, it's just a blip on the radar. It doesn't really matter. But that's only true if you never miss twice. So I think those two philosophies that come out of the Seinfeld strategy of don't break the chain and never miss twice are kind of powerful ways to to keep habits and uh, maintain consistency over the long run. Yeah. And you know what? He's like another one who... I mean, and people ask him, like, why why still go up every other day at a stand-up club? I mean, I don't think he does as much. I think he's mostly sort of relegated to doing uh, the Beacon Theater twice a month in New York. But it's like, it's an obsession that despite the money and despite the success, like this idea that if he doesn't keep it up in some respect, it'll be like a muscle that atrophies. And it, it probably will to a certain degree. You know, it's hard to stay good at things without practicing them. Um, but it also comes back to some of the other piece that we uh, pieces that we discussed earlier, this idea of the system rather than the goal, the, the process rather than the outcome. You know, it's ultimately it's reinforcing his identity as a comedian to get up there and do it again. It's not even about the result anymore. Like he's had more success than he could ever hope to have. Um, it's more about being a comedian, about reinforcing that identity, about showing up and sticking to the process in the way that that he wants to stick to it. And um, I think you, you paradoxically, you kind of see that with a lot of people who have the best results. It's almost like it's less about the result. It's more about being the person that could achieve that result. It's more about it's less about winning the Super Bowl for Tom Brady. It's more about being the kind of person that could be a Super Bowl winning quarterback. Uh, if it was just about winning the Super Bowl, he could have stopped 20 years ago, right? Um, right? So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. There's, there's a certain obsession with the process, a certain focus on building that identity that you see occur again and again in a lot of elite performers. You know, it's funny. I was interviewing my friend Ryan Holiday, who I think is su- super brilliant and and has written, you know, ten books. And it was funny because I was interviewing him on his most recent book. And I said, why don't you give more strategy or like a, you know, a list of things to do the moment this book is finished to sort of implement the strategies or, or sort of the, to implement the idea of the book, which is um, stillness is the key, which was finding stillness in his new book. And he said something to the effect of, he said, because Josh, no one meditates. And what he was saying was like, yeah, of course, some people meditate, he said, but what we find over and over again is that very few people, even though, even when they know it's good, implement these things into their lives. So he's like, my strategy was to give sort of, uh, sort of allegorical stories where perhaps a seed is planted and someone uses it in their life. So like knowing that, knowing that maybe someone to your point could take take 1% away from your book. What, what do you, what do you, what's the one seed that you hope people take away from the book? Uh, you know, knowing that people are, are very bad at implementing habits. <laughs> yeah. I think there are kind of three core ideas of atomic habits and we've, we've discussed all of them. So I'll just recap them quickly. But I think that to Ryan's point, to your question, 
really what I'm hoping to achieve, you know, I, I want to give people a set of tools, uh, a guidebook that they can use for building better behavior. But ultimately, my hope is that all of these ideas and the strategies that are shared in the book, they give people a different worldview, right? They give you like a, a different set of glasses to put on at the beginning of each day so that mm. as you're going through your life, you can see the opportunities for implementing the ideas that you did not see before. Because part of the challenge of, you know, like Ryan's nobody meditates idea or whatever, is that you can't be with every person who reads the book for every minute of the day. So what you need is to give people a new lens, a new way for, to look at the world so that they can coach themselves through it. Right. Um, and so the, the three core ideas that I hope people come away with and that we've discussed a little bit already the first one is habits of the compound interest, self-improvement. You're trying to get 1% better each day. So that first idea is, hey, small things matter, right? Like it doesn't have to be a big thing if done daily. Just making a small little bit of progress is really meaningful in the long run. So that's the first idea. The second maybe shift in your lens is that you don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. Now, how do we do that? Well, we try to build small little daily habits each day. And so as you're going through your life, you're looking for ways to improve your system, for ways to upgrade uh, the, the system that you're running each time and having that focus more on the process and less on the outcome. So that's the second one. And then the, the third big idea is that every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you want to become. And so if you can do those first two, if you can make small 1% improvements each day, if you can realize that tiny changes really do matter in the long run, and you start to accumulate those 1% improvements into a bigger system, well, then what you're doing hopefully is reinforcing the type of person you want to be. You're providing a lot of evidence for this new identity that you're fostering. And ultimately, I feel like that is the real reason habits matter, is that they can reshape your sense of self. They can give you evidence of a new belief about I am the type of person who doesn't miss workouts, or I'm the type of person who finishes what I start, or you know, like I say a lot of times, like the real goal is not to do a silent meditation retreat. The goal is to become a meditator, right? Like the goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. The goal is not to write a book. The goal is to become a writer. And I think the way that you do that, the at least the most effective way that I know of is make small 1% improvements each day, layer them on top of each other, like units in a larger system. And then ultimately you can kind of reshape the belief that you have about yourself through those gradual changes. So that's sort of the, the main lens that I hope people come away with and that gives them a chance to look at the world in maybe a slightly different way and to see opportunity where maybe previously they hadn't. That's so good. Um, I mean, I feel like this kind of overlaps, but it is my last question that I ask everyone on the podcast. So I'd be remiss if I didn't, but, um, what are your one or two James Clear commandments, truths that you have discovered that you'd want to impress upon someone else? Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I want to call them commandments for like life. There's probably more important ideas than this, but I did have two that came to me. So the, the first one is about reading, which is start more books, quit most of them, read the great ones twice. Start more books, quit most of them, read the great ones twice. I, I wish I had done that earlier and I wish I'd do it even more than I do now, even though I know about it. You know, like there's a lot of, there's way more good books out there than you could read in a single lifetime. So get a taste of them. The ones that aren't resonating with you or don't seem relevant or you don't love, get rid of them and move on to another one. And then when you find a really great one, read it again. Um, because I think the insights, they'll often grow on you. You'll find new ways to apply it. You know, if you read it at a different time in your life, it's almost like you're a different person. You'll see different applications. So I think that one's a, a good one. And then the second one that I thought of is that success is rarely the result of one thing, but failure can be. And so the, the point here is that you like sleep is a good example. Just getting good sleep each night is not going to make you successful, but getting a terrible night of sleep or not sleeping at all, that can be enough to wreck the day. And so um, really what you see with people who succeed is they don't, there is no secret to success. There is no one thing that people do. It's a combination of many factors working together. And once you realize that, then you start to see, okay, it's useful to get these habits dialed in so that then I can focus on the next thing and get that dialed in and, and repeat and so on. And so you're, again, you're trying to build a system that moves you towards success. And at the same time, you're trying to master those fundamentals because not getting one of those fundamentals like sleep 
uh, is enough to derail the whole project. Um, and so uh, understanding that asymmetry a little bit more, that success is never the result of one thing, but failure can be. I think that's also kind of a, a meaningful idea that you can carry around and apply in a lot of ways. Awesome. James, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you for having me. Good to talk to you. That was it. That was James Clear. How about that, right? I'm telling you tools. That's what the Curious Podcast gives you, tools. And you're so welcome because that's what I'm here for. I have a lot to offer and I want you guys to know that you can be better because what's the alternative? Being worse? That sucks. No one wants that. Anyway, guys, check out James Clear at jamesclear.com. Uh, And thank you again to James for doing the pod. All right. Talk to you next week. Bye.